0: Well, this morning, we begin a new series for the new year. And over the next few weeks, we want to answer a question, one very simple question. Perhaps it's a question you've asked before, perhaps a question you asked even this morning. The question is this, what exactly are we doing here? Why did we crawl out of a warm bed and then take a hot shower to venture back out into the cold? to join a bunch of other people who did the same? Why would we leave our warm homes, Sunday papers, football games to be here together? Are we here for God? Are we here for God to declare our devotion, our faith, our trust in him? Are we here for ourselves to see the friends that we like, to sing the songs that we love, perhaps even to learn something new from the scriptures? Or are we here for other people? Other people who aren't even yet here? And how would that work, that our being here has to do with them, even if they're not yet here? So, so what exactly are we doing here? Now, this question is being asked a lot these days. As, uh, in churches around our community, uh, across our country, especially in light of the challenges of the past two years and the ongoing experiences of doubt and deconstruction, more and more people are asking questions about the role of church in their lives, even the role of faith in their lives. Ongoing movements online uh, uh, with the titles ex-vangelical. In other words, I used to be evangelical, now I'm exvangelical. <laughs> This is a huge movement among young people who want nothing to do with the church. There's another hashtag become very popular, um, empty the pews. In other words, get as many people out of the pews as possible. And yet here we are, in pews no less. So what are we doing here? For the next few weeks, we're going to be working our way through our church's mission statement, word by word. That statement is we are here to invite all people to grow into a Christ-centered life in God's family. So I want us to begin in the beginning. If you were here on Christmas Eve, you heard these verses from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I love how Eugene Peterson put it in the message. I know it's a paraphrase. It's not quite the the Greek, but but I love how he said, uh, the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. The idea that God would move into our neighborhood. Now, the Word what was a brilliant way of speaking about Jesus prior to the incarnation, prior to what we celebrate at Christmas. Um, the Word. You see, the ancient Hebrews held in, in high regard the eternal Word of God, the inspired, authoritative Word of God. And, and the Greeks understood the Word as the culmination of all reason and all knowledge. And so as John is writing uh, chapter one of his gospel, trying to find a way to communicate that Jesus existed before Christmas, he lands on this phrase, the word. And it's just brilliant. Because it speaks to both groups that he was trying to reach with the good news of the incarnated word. I once heard a Sunday school class, a kid's Sunday school class engaging these verses And the teacher asked the kids a question, a, a very tough question, really. But the teacher said, why do you think the Bible refers to Jesus as the Word? Kind of a tough question. This is the type of thing that PhD candidates write dissertations on. And, and theologians write big, thick books on. Why is Jesus referred to as the Word? And a, and a little eight-year-old girl raised her hand and she said, Jesus is called the Word... Because Jesus is all God wanted to say to us. (laughs) Kind of sums up those dissertations, doesn't it? See, in a way, this prologue to the Gospel of John uh, are like the opening of a a great symphony. They foreshadow all of the melodies that are to come. Or it's like a, a grand entrance to an immaculate mansion that we explore through the remainder of the Gospel. In that case, John the Baptist is the conductor. He's the one who welcomes us into the home. John continues, he says, "'Now this was John's testimony "'when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem "'sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. "'He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, "'I am not the Messiah.' "'They asked him, well then, who are you? "'Are are you Elijah?' "'He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Finally, they said, Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Have you noticed John isn't much of a conversationalist? <laughs> are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Who are you? You can almost sense a kind of exasperation from the Jewish leaders. John replied, In the words of Isaiah the prophet. I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The next day John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said again, Look, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. And turning around, Jesus saw them following, and he asked them, what do you want? Imagine what that must have been like. You're standing there with John the Baptist, a, a preacher known for wearing camel's hair and, and eating locusts and, and wild honey, a weird pastor to be sure. Would you agree? <laughs> but you all know what that's like, right? <laughs> Brian, now john's not much of a conversationalist is he no but what does he do he points to the lamb of god this is just one of the many titles for jesus in this first chapter of john he's he's the eternal word the son of god uh, rabbi messiah king of israel the son of man but this title This one that John uses to point his disciples to the Lamb of God, this held great significance for ancient people. Again, this is one of those titles that worked for a lot of different people for a lot of different ways. You see, there were some ancient people who believed that the stars were kind of clues to life. This is true, they, they would look up, believing the heavens were up, believing that God was up, and so somehow those stars that shone back at them must be clues to somehow understand or interpret life. And so, as ancient people looked up, they thought they could connect some of the stars as if they were dots and create a kind of lamb. Now, um, this lamb was seen clearly uh, every spring season. It it became known for some ancient people as the first constellation in the zodiac. This is not something I'm encouraging you to go look up and figure out your astrology or anything like that. But for ancient people, they thought they saw the lamb there. And every springtime when Israelites would celebrate the Exodus, they could look up and think that they could make out a lamb out of the stars. And every springtime, when they could look up and think that they could kind of connect the dots and make a a lamb out of the stars, that constellation in the zodiac, it was the same time of the year when the Israelites would remember when an unblemished lamb's blood was placed on their doorways, providing them an exodus, an exit from Egypt, providing them an escape. We see that same imagery, not in the stars, We see that same imagery throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that takes away the sin of God's people that they might escape, that they might have an exodus from Egypt. And so John uses this very common first century metaphor to point to Jesus. He says that's the Lamb of God, the the center and the head of the cosmos through whom all things were created. So there's this incredible build-up, right? There's this excitement. Two of John's disciples begin to follow Jesus. Imagine what that must have been like to hear after hundreds of years and prophecies the Lamb of God. They begin following them, and, and, and then Jesus turns around, and he asks them, what do you want? Or, or what do you seek? Or what are you looking for? Can you imagine what that must have been like? Do you ever wonder what his tone of voice might have been? John says, look, it's the Lamb of God, the one we've been waiting for, and and Jesus says, what can I do for you? Notice, Jesus doesn't ask, how is your day going? Jesus doesn't ask, how do you feel? Jesus doesn't even ask, what do you know? Now, for us, 21st century, intellectual, enlightened folks, what we know is a big deal, isn't it? But Jesus doesn't ask what they know. What's most surprising to me is Jesus doesn't even ask what you believe. John says, look, it's the Lamb of God. I would have expected Jesus to turn around and say, do you believe it? That I am the one you've been waiting for? That would have been a great place to start. Do you believe this? But Jesus turns around and he says, What do you want? One of my favorite authors is a a philosopher named um, James K.A. Smith. Jamie Smith. He writes this. He says, that is the question. What do you want? It is the first and the last. It's the most fundamental question of Christian discipleship. It's the question that's buried under almost every other question that Jesus asks of us. What do you want? He continues, he says, discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than it is of knowing and believing. Now, if you think about it, that's going to rub you the wrong way because it's very opposite of how the church has functioned for a long time. Strikes us as strange. But, But think about it. If our discipleship, if following after Jesus, is only about what we know and what we believe, then once we know it and we believe it, our discipleship is completed. It's like finishing a thousand-piece puzzle. And once that puzzle's done, well, you put it back in the box. It's like, I'll I'll speak to my 10-year-old son, okay? It's like when you finish the level on that video game, you don't have to go play that that level anymore on that video game. When we think of discipleship as what we know... And what we believe. That's why there's some, we may know, people who who know the scriptures backwards and forwards. Who have believed in Jesus for decades. But in a way, their spiritual life or, or their emotional life, their depth, perhaps we could say, has a lot of room for growth. Why? Because their end goal was knowing and believing, not hungering and thirsting. And that's why Jesus asks us, what do you want? That's why Jesus tells stories about how God's kingdom is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again, and in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. That's why Jesus tells a story about the kingdom of God is like a a merchant looking for fine pearls. And, And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had, and he bought that pearl. why Jesus teaches his disciples, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. For three years, through thick and thin, Jesus not only taught his disciples what to think and Shared with them how they were to believe. Jesus reordered his disciples' desires. He reordered their wants. And that's why he talks so much about things that make us uncomfortable, uh, about how we spend our money and how we wield our power and how we use our time, because they're indicators of what we really want. As I think about what I really want, I'm reminded of the many years that my New Year's resolutions haven't made it past the first week? (laughs) Anybody there? Like, I really want to lose 10 pounds. And I think I've got 10 pounds to lose. But you know what I want more than to lose 10 pounds? That cheeseburger. (laughs) See, it's not what I really want. If it's what I really wanted, I'd do something about it. Jesus says, what do you want? The story has been told of a monk who one day was walking along a path, and he he came upon a precious jewel, a valuable gem, and and so he picked it up, and he packed it into his bag, and he continued on his journey home. Shortly thereafter, when he got home, this monk heard a knock at the door, and he opened it, and it was a a wandering soul in, in need, and the monk asked, like Jesus, what do you want? And the beggar asked for money to buy food and drink. And the monk told the beggar, I, I have no money, but, but what I do have, I will give you. And he, he pulled out that precious jewel. He promptly and freely handed over the jewel to the wandering man. And this wanderer, with great astonishment, took the gem, went into town and bought food and drink, place to get a bath, a warm place to sleep, new clothes. This is the good life. Or is it? See, the wanderer couldn't help thinking about the monk. So the next morning, he returned to the place where the monk lived, and he knocked on the door, and the door opened. And again, the monk asked, like Jesus, what do you want? This time, the seeker inquired pointedly. He said, I want whatever it is that you have that is more valuable than that gem that would lead you to give it to me. I want whatever it is that you have that would cause you to hand that over so freely. The monk welcomed the seeking soul into his home. They sat down together. The monk shared all about Jesus, the greatest treasure anyone could ever have, the reason that he shared so freely and so richly. That seeking soul found Jesus that day. He hungered and thirsted no more. And so, friends, as we enter the new year, are we looking for the jewel Or are we looking for Jesus? Are we looking for the jewel, that one priceless treasure above all else? Or are we looking for Jesus, the one that would cause us to give all our jewels away? Because we're all, in one way or another, we're all like that seeking soul. In one way or another, we're all like that wandering beggar. We like to pretend that we're not, but we're all in need. We all have deep, deep desires, whether we will admit them or not. You see, it's one thing to be filled with knowledge and belief. It's another thing to be filled with hunger and thirst. This past week, Cassie and I took our kids to see a new animated movie called Sing 2. It's a movie filled with quirky cartoon characters who put on the show in the entertainment capital of the world. And I don't want to ruin it for you, but I'm about to. (laughs) Spoiler alert, if there's any kids around or if anybody wants to see it, my hands or my feelings won't be hurt if you want to put your hands in your ears. At the climax of the movie, the star of the show, voiced by the lead singer of U2, he isn't sure he can perform again after a number of losses in his life. He's not sure he can walk out on the stage. And so he, he stands right behind the curtain, unsure if he's willing to come out. Unsure if he can do it. Unsure if he can play his guitar and sing for the crowd that's assembled. And here's, spoiler alert, I'm going to ruin it for you. At the last minute, the celebrity voice, who is the lead singer of U2, sings some U2. The irony was lost on my children but he walked out and he sang these words. In a major motion picture animated film released at the Christmas season, he sang these words. I believe in the kingdom come when all the colors will bleed into one. And yes, I'm still running. You broke the bonds and you loosed the chains You carried the cross of my shame. You know I believe it. This is a U2 song being sung by the singer of U2. And and, and then the chorus. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Here's a, a major studio blockbuster Christmas movie. The height of the movie features lyrics about the eternal word. The son of God, the rabbi, the messiah, the king of Israel, the son of man. Bono is singing about the Lamb of God. He is singing about the Lamb of God as a cartoon lion in an animated movie. And these words about Jesus concludes that within him, and in that song, there is still a deep desire. There is still a longing for God to reveal himself in an even deeper way, an even richer way. On the way out of the theater, my kids and I had a rich and robust theological discussion about what just happened. I wanted to make sure they didn't miss the moment. Do you realize that in that movie, when we all got chills and your dad got a little teary-eyed? I didn't admit that, but it's true. Do you realize that in that movie, the lyrics to that song, he's singing about Jesus. See, at that moment in the movie, the time when I wasn't working on my sermon was the time when God was most working on me in the moment in that moment in that movie i realized that god spoke to me in a way through that silly animation because kind of like that character that cartoon character lion the last few years have been challenging been challenging for all of us and there are ways in which my head is filled with the knowledge of the scriptures backwards and forwards and and i have believed in jesus for decades but my spiritual life my My emotional life, I too have a lot of room for growth. My end goal, I'll admit it, my end goal has been about knowing and believing, not hungering and thirsting. Perhaps you're a little bit like me this morning. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Yes, I believe in the kingdom come when all the colors will bleed into one. Yes, Jesus carried my cross and my shame. But have we found what we're looking for? Is there still a deep desire for God to move in a new way this year? As we think about inviting all people to grow into a Christ-centered life in God's family, I want us to first start with the good news, not of what we're supposed to do by inviting people to life in God's family, but I want us to start this new year with the good news that we have been invited by Jesus. And not just for our brains to think a certain way, and not just for our hearts to believe a certain thing, Jesus wants all of us. That's why he turns around and asks that kind of awkward question to people who would be his disciples. Jesus turns around and he says, what do you want? Because Jesus doesn't only want our brains, he doesn't only want our hearts, he wants all of us. You see, that eight-year-old girl was right. Jesus is all God wanted to say to us. And I don't know about you, but I need to hear that more and more. This year, I need more of Jesus, more of God's word, and I want to give him more of me. So, this new year, what do you want? Have your hopes and and dreams, maybe even your prayers, been too small? What do you want? Years ago, um, on a Sunday, not entirely like this one, um, my son was around five years old, and after the time of hearing disciples, he went off to his classroom, and and we all remained in here, and we sang, and we heard from God's word, and and then we came to this table. And five years ago or so, my son's five years old, he comes back in looking for us after his time in his classroom, and he said, what, you guys had snack time? I didn't know about that. (laughs) This is true. And you know, pastor's kids can go one of two ways, right? And so I was really nervous. Oh, gosh. The theological education of my five-year-old is in jeopardy. We've got to figure this out now. No, Moses, this isn't snack time. This is a really big deal. This isn't, no. But then I realized, actually, he's kind of on to something. Now, I'm not calling it snack time. But why is it that the prophet Isaiah would say, come, all of you who are hungry, buy bread and and milk without cost. Come, all who you who are hungry and who are thirsty. Why would Isaiah use that kind of language, that kind of imagery? Why would Jesus constantly sit down and have meals with the people with whom he wasn't supposed to sit down and have meals with? Why does Revelation point forward to a great heavenly feast Why? Because the scriptures are trying to form people, not just who know and believe, but who hunger and thirst. And in a way, what we're about to do in a few moments is is not supposed to fill us up and sustain us through the day. I trust we're going to eat more than just this communion this morning. But what this is supposed to do is to whet our appetite, that we might be people who hunger and who thirst who hunger and thirst, because Jesus is all God wanted to say to us, but maybe we need to hear him more. May this symbolic meal for us this morning whet our appetite, because we believe in the kingdom come, and, and we know Jesus carried our cross and our shame, but we can sing along with Bono. There's a way in which we still haven't found what we're looking for, because we are those who still hunger and thirst for God to do a new thing. For God to lead us into this new year in a new way. And so God, as we come to this table in a few moments, would you remind us of the good news of Jesus? Who not only comes to form our minds in the way that we should think, though he does, and does not only form our hearts into what we should believe, though he does, Jesus not only forms our minds and forms our hearts, but wants to reorder our desires. And ask us that question, what do you want? Fathers, we come to the table this morning, would you help us to see that what we want most of all is you. You've come from the heights of heaven to be with us here today, even now. And that we might leave our warm beds and hot showers and venture out into the cold with a bunch of people in a room, some of whom we don't even know, to be reminded of that good news. And that our desires would be reordered away from the things that we think we want to the thing that we know that we need. Your love, your grace, your presence in our life this day and always. So be with us. Now, Lord, meet us here, we pray.